Welcome to HR Works, brought to you by BLR. I'm your host, Steve Bruce. HR Works provides clear, relevant, actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals. When you're armed with best practices, plus the knowledge to keep your organization in compliance, HR works. It might seem that dress codes and appearance policies would be old hat for HR, but the challenges in this area just keep mounting and there's no shortage of eager lawyers waiting to bring a suit for discrimination or failure to accommodate. So to pin down uh, best practices and to find out how to avoid those expensive lawsuits, we've asked attorney Usama Koff to join us. He is an associate in the Irvine office of the Fisher and Phillips law firm. Uh, He represents and counsels employers in all aspects of labor and employment law and that includes wage and hour, harassment, discrimination, retaliation, employee discipline and termination, and trade secrets. He also regularly advises clients on data security breaches and prevention, workplace investigations, and employee classification issues, as well as on document retention and preservation obligations under state and federal law. He was selected for inclusion in the 2013, 2014, and 2015 Southern California Super Lawyers Rising Stars. Welcome to HR Works, Usama. Thank you for having me. I am delighted to be here. So let's start out with a basic question. Can employers have dress codes? Yes, they can, and they should. In fact, Steve, uh, there are really many good reasons, uh, both legal and business reasons, for having a dress code, uh, including such things as protecting a company's image, Uh, For the legal reasons, uh, a good reason is to limit harassment arising out of how people dress in the workplace, uh, to promote a productive work environment, um, as well as to comply with the regulations uh, regarding safety, regulations and standards. Um, You might have to have a dress code in some uh, industries by law. Uh, And also to provide employees with notice of uh, your expectations of how they're supposed to act and behave in the workplace. Well, how specific um, can you be as you're making these policies? I mean, should they just say appropriate business attire, or is it better to actually specify clothing types? I will give you the very typical attorney response of it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Employers should be as specific or general as fits their business culture. Um, You know, so the, the policy should really still give more guidance than merely saying dress appropriately or don't dress inappropriately. Uh, That's uh, a little too vague for anyone to be able to follow. Um, There are pros and cons to a a specific versus a less specific policy. Uh, A more specific policy can help you easily identify, uh, discipline, and correct anyone who violates the policy, but it may not allow for variations and discretion that sometimes may be required by discrimination laws. Uh, on the other hand, um, a less detailed policy um, that's you know a little bit more broad has the advantage of giving individual managers more discretion uh, on how to um, you know in how their staff appears and behaves, what they dress, uh, and this allows for variation from location to location if you have multiple locations and so on. Uh, but the problem with a less detailed policy is that it actually creates opportunities for disagreements on interpretation of the policy and a lot more inconsistency in how it's applied. Okay, that's great. Now, uh, can you have different requirements for men and women? 
Uh, the general rule under federal law and, and most state laws is that uh, you may apply different dress codes as long as it does not impose a disproportionate burden on either sex. Uh, and that's a, a nuanced case-by-case uh, -case type of analysis. Uh, but generally, employers should be careful to review their dress and appearance codes to ensure that, number one, uh, any requirement that applies to only one sex is not significantly more difficult to comply with than requirements applicable to the other sex. That's, it's very important to follow that. And number two, uh, the, the policy, they have to make sure that the policies as a whole do not demonstrate any discriminatory or sexually stereotypical intent. All right. Well, that seems reasonable. Now, how about, uh, for example, tattoos? You, what do you say about them? Yeah, you can certainly regulate uh, appearance and grooming, um, including tattoos and, and other items uh, we can talk about. Um, it, it, such kind of uh, regulations and policies can be justified in some cases for safety reasons. Uh, you know, also a policy that prohibits offensive or vulgar, vulgar expressions is justified based on the need to maintain order and decorum in the workplace. Um, you have really no obligation to tolerate offensive and vulgar expressions, um, you know, including, uh, you know, via tattoos uh, in the workplace. Uh, they, they may even become a liability. For example, uh, an employee may claim that his KKK tattoo represents a religious belief but that same tattoo could be used as evidence to support a coworker's harassment claim against the company. So it, it's actually a good idea to limit that kind of uh, approach. Okay, now how does that uh, same thing kind of go for hairstyles and beards? Uh, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, hair, hairstyles and beards, same thing. Uh, you know, as long as you can justify the policy based on a legitimate uh, business reason and you're applying it consistently, uh, and you also uh, allow for consideration of uh, potential accommodations, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Uh, but it, generally, that will, will also apply to, to beards, um, including, uh, you know, for safety reasons, those can be justified. And maybe uh, one other category, how about piercings? Uh, so cases generally hold that it's okay for employers to conclude that piercings, other than an e uh, on ears, conflict with the company's branding image, values, or mission, uh, and piercings that could get caught in machinery, for example, uh, those run afoul of safety concerns and regulations. Uh, but just like dress codes, prohibitions on piercings should be well thought out, written out, and applied consistently. You don't want to leave piercings to supervisory discretion uh, because that may lead to discriminatory application. Uh, you want to consider the nature of the job, uh, for example, a creative artist versus a customer contact in a bank, uh, you know, it can be held to a different standard based on the nature of the job. Uh, and you also want to consider the potential for religious accommodation issues. Uh, the important part here from all these different types of, uh, of, of issues, piercings, tattoos, beards, is um, uh, an all-or-nothing approach may not be the best. So refusing to hire anyone with multiple piercings, uh, you know, sh should not you know, should not be uh, a rule, it, uh, you know, versus requiring the covering of non-ear piercings with Band-Aids, for example. Uh, so it, you shouldn't apply a rule of, I'm not going to hire anybody with, with piercings, versus hire them but hold them to an expectation uh, of the policy that is justified for safety reasons or any other types of uh, legitimate business reasons. 
Okay, well, let's uh, go where you mentioned and uh, talk a little bit about exemptions and accommodations. Under what circumstances could an employee expect to be exempted from company appearance policy? So the general rule uh, under state and federal law, most states, and, and you know, especially and Title Seven uh, of the federal law, uh, is that employers must provide a reasonable accommodation unless it would cause an undue hardship, which is a, a loaded statement uh, that people have been debating for decades. Uh, the key here is that you should resist the urge to apply an across-the-board rule. Whether an accommodation is reasonable has to be a case-by-case analysis. Uh, and uh, in order to determine whether an accommodation is reasonable, uh, you uh, would be investigating the need for the accommodation, uh, what accommodations you're able to provide, uh, and whether they provide, uh, you know, they, they cause some sort of hardship to the company. You don't want to give an automatic no to a request for an exception from a dress code policy, uh, you know, especially if that exception uh, is being requested on the basis of a religious belief or practice. So, uh, you know, whether the accommodation itself is appropriate may also depend on the justification for the policy. If the policy is needed for safety reasons, that may trump religious beliefs in some cases, may not. Uh, and so that, that analysis is going gonna, is gonna to depend on uh, the circumstances. Uh, but you should definitely create a record that you have engaged in the interactive process and that give and take in trying to figure out whether to provide a reasonable accommodation. Because at the end of the day, there is no obligation to provide the most reasonable accommodation or the one that the employee favors, only a reasonable one. Uh, so different uh, ways that an employer can establish undue hardship uh, to show that a, an accommodation is not required is by showing that it impairs safety, uh, it would diminish efficiency of, uh, of the work, uh, or that it would require more than administrative costs. I'll give you an example because a lot of times these concepts are so broad, it's, it's tough to, to really understand unless you put it in an actual example. Uh, in one case, uh, the EEOC um, sued on behalf of an employee, arguing that the employer's refusal to allow her to wear a skirt while performing her furniture manufacturing job amounted to religious discrimination. Uh, this employee claimed that as a member of the conservative holiness faith, she was prohibited from wearing pants. And so the court actually upheld the pants-only dress code because it was based on safety concerns regarding mobility and flexibility and the danger of loose clothing becoming caught in machinery. Um, you know, a lot of different examples, but I'll give you a, a two very quick ones. Uh, uh, a restaurant employee refused to cover tattoos while at work on the grounds that covering the tattoo, which were themselves religious expressions, would violate his, his religious beliefs. The EOC sued, uh, and the case had to settle for approximately $150,000. Um, similar analysis would also be applied to piercings and whether an accommodation from that kind of policy would be reasonable. Um, for example, you know, wearing uh, a, a piercing that might get caught in something, um, you know, jeopardizes safety. Um, and so th those cases are going to really depend on the circumstances at the end of the day. Uh, but, you know, those basic categories for when you are not required to provide the accommodation are uh, if it uh, diminishes efficiency, uh, impairs safety, or requires more than administrative costs. Okay. The, if, um, if you get a request for accommodation on a basis of a religious belief, what, does it fall to HR to be the 
arbiter of whether the employee's religious beliefs are sincerely held? Uh, it will be funny if HR has to, uh, you know, uh, throw someone and, uh, uh, you know, put, put, tie some weight around uh, around the employee and throw them in the water. And if they float, that means they're uh, they're telling the truth, right? Whatever that uh, that old way of uh, uh, from the old days of uh, how they would tell whether someone was uh, was a witch or not, right? Um, uh, no, I, I, just joking aside. Ultimately, the court, not HR, is going to be the arbiter of whether an employee's religious beliefs are sincerely held. Um, I generally recommend that you don't go down the road of questioning the sincerity of what the employee claims is a religious belief. Uh, of course, there are exceptional circumstances that are outrageous that everybody kind of uh, shrugs and says, huh, that's, that can't be serious. Uh, it, but the factual inquiry about whether some, uh, a belief is sincerely held usually favors the employee. And uh, the employer is only allowed to make a limited reasonable inquiry, um, and they cannot require a particular type of confirmation, uh, like a, a lie detector test or some other type of uh, uh, test that an employee has to, uh, or some proof that the employee has to show to confirm their religious belief. Like, uh, you know, why don't you recite the the, the the Ten Commandments, or why don't you recite what you know certain? Uh, there, there is no requ requirement that the employer can impose to, to confirm the sincerity of the religious belief. So factors that a court would assess in deciding whether a belief is sincerely held would include such things like whether an employee has behaved in a manner consistent with their professed belief, whether the accommodation sought is, particu is a particularly desirable benefit likely to be sought for secular reasons, uh, the timing of the request, and any other reason the employer has to believe the request is not being sought for religious reasons. All of these different factors and evidence uh, re related to these factors would be presented, and then the court or the jury would make a determination whether the belief is sincerely held. But it's always dangerous, in my view, um, uh, and experience to, to even go down that route of trying to challenge. It's kind of analogous to uh, someone is calling in sick or you know has uh, uh, you know needs to go in for surgery. Um, or has some sort of sickness, and you start questioning, um, you know, the sincerity of their claim that they have an injury uh, or that they are sick. Um, you know, you can always, you know, in those cases, you can always uh, uh, obtain documentation, and there are better ways to prove the sincerity of that condition than for religious beliefs. But it's sort of analogous. In, in your day-to-day, -day, someone calls in sick, uh, you know, because they have the cold or the flu, you're not going to say that you're lying unless if you have a really good reason to believe that they uh, that they are. Okay. Now, um, can the can the company advance its corporate image as a as a way to try to refuse these accommodations? This is the hot topic nowadays, especially in light of uh, the Supreme Court case last June uh, and the Abercrombie and Fitch case. Uh, so the need to uh, generally the courts rule that the need to maintain a certain look is is generally not enough of a hardship to justify blanket refusals for accommodation requests. The key is that you have to be even-handed and consistent uh, in uh, treating all of the accommodation requests that you receive. If a ball cap or a flamboyant hairstyle does not pose an undue hardship, then neither does a turban or a headscarf based upon sincerely held religious beliefs. Uh, and, and, you know, one example I, I, I can think of, uh, a fast food franchise in Texas terminated the cashier 
because she wore a skirt to work instead of the restaurant's uniform pants. The applicant uh, allegedly informed the restaurant of her need for an accommodation because of her religion being Christian Pentecostal, um, and that, that her religious belief forbids her from wearing slacks. The EEOC brought this case, and they argued that allowing the applicant to wear a skirt would not have cost anything, and thus was not an undue hardship. Uh, of course, that kind of case uh, would have uh, gone against the employer, so the employer went ahead and, and settled. Um, another example is, uh, the, you know, obviously the Abercrombie and Fitch case, and uh, um, that took years for it to go up to the Supreme Court, but initially um, the, uh, the, the lower court um, found for the employee. Um, and uh, in this case, it was a Muslim female applicant that applied for a sales position uh, and then was not, did, you know, did not receive uh, an offer and then claimed that she wasn't hired because she wore a headscarf to the interview. Um, the retailer, in this case, required its employees to comply with its look policy, uh, and that policy prohibited caps to be worn. It prohibited wearing uh, clothing that is black, uh, but it didn't mention any other headgear. Uh, and so this applicant for, uh, you know, employment uh, wore their headscarf. Uh, it's, it's called the hijab, uh, which is a religious, uh, you know, garb uh, that uh, women who are uh, practicing, uh, you know, Muslims uh, wear. Uh, she wore it during the interview, but there was no mention of it. No one ever raised it during the interview. Um, she didn't ask uh, if, the, you know, it's going to be a problem. Uh, and, in fact, uh, you know, the evidence showed that she qualified otherwise for the job, and there was no issue about her qualification. Uh, she qualified. She just didn't get the job. Um, and uh, she didn't ask for an accommodation. The court, the district court, found that the, the applicant acted on her belief that, um, that the Quran requires women to wear the headscarf, uh, and uh, the fact that, that she wore the headscarf to the interview was sufficient for the store to enter into an interactive process regarding religious accommodation. She didn't need to ask, in other words. That was appealed. The Tenth Circuit disagreed, um, and they, ha they reversed, held for the employer, ruling that the applicant must provide the employer with actual knowledge of a religious conflict, uh, that, you know, meaning you've got to ask for an accommodation. You can't just show up with it and uh, assume that you're going to be accommodated. Um, and then, of course, uh, as we all know, uh, you know, the Supreme Court in an 8-to-1 decision in June of last year reversed, holding that the applicant only needed to show that the need for the accommodation was a motivating factor in the challenge decision. Uh, and the employer didn't need to have actual knowledge. Um, you know, it's, it's just that they were on notice uh, when they showed up to interview this person that, hey, look, uh, you know, uh, she is wearing a headscarf that may conflict with our existing look policy. Uh, the takeaways at the end of the day from this case is that you still should not be asking about religion during a job interview, but you should not ignore a potential conflict between a religious practice that you have clearly observed and a company policy, like a dress code policy. So what you do is you're in the interview, you would explain your policy and just ask the, the applicant whether they will be able to comply with the policy. Okay, great. Now, um, with regard to national origin discrimination, is a similar situation there with accommodations? Yeah, definitely. Um, similar case-by-case -case analysis would be applied. Um, preferring a certain look may be unlawful because race and national origin is really never a bona fide occupational quality. 
So it actually might be uh, more difficult to justify a policy there, um, uh, if not nearly impossible, that has something to do with uh, um, race or national origin. Although there are circumstances where um, uh, those kinds of policies, even though they had a disparate impact, a negative impact on certain uh, ethnic communities uh, or a certain culture, um, where, where those policies were upheld for, for safety reasons. Um, I'll give you some examples. So uh, with hairstyles and hair color, there's a court that upheld grooming standards banning all employees from wearing their, ha their hair in cornrows. Um, even when the employees that sued said that cornrows were an expression of their ethnic identity. Um, and uh, the court said no. Um, you know, it, like, you, you could prohibit that um, uh, because it was justified in that case for business reasons. Uh, a no-beard policy could also be um, upheld uh, in some cases, depending on the circumstances. Now, uh, this is, of course, separate from an accommodation for a religious belief, because you might have to accommodate someone who, uh, like a Sikh or something else who, who uh, you know, believes uh, that uh, they have to have a beard uh, as part of their religious practice. But when, when it comes to the context of uh, national origin and race discrimination, um, courts have found that uh, for a no-beard policy to be discriminatory, uh, to be discriminatory um, it would have to have had a disproportionate adverse effect on a racial group because of unavoidable physical characteristics. Uh, so, uh, you know, some courts find that those policies uh, that just say no beards, uh, period, um, might be discriminatory, um, but that kind of policy can still be justified under other circumstances. And I, I know I'm giving you kind of the, the lawyerly answer of it depends, it depends. Uh, the point here is that this has to be a case-by-case -case analysis. Okay, thanks. Now, how about um, the consequences when you fail to address or correct harassment if it's on uh, one of these bases we've been talking about? This one's really easy. You, could, you would get sued. Okay. Uh, the employee yeah. would file a lawsuit against you or an administrative charge with the EEOC or the state agency equivalent or both. And if you're, if you're lucky, and most employers aren't lucky, the employee's attorney will first send you a demand letter before running to court, in which case you will have an opportunity to settle for much less before litigation ensues. Uh, because once litigation ensues, settlement values go up and it's going to be a lot more expensive to defend. Um, and, uh, you know, the employer can be sued for failure, claims like failure to prevent harassment or creating a hostile work environment if you didn't take appropriate steps to prevent harassment, um, such as training your managers or investigating uh, complaints about harassment in a timely manner. Uh, and then, of course, if a supervisor is directly responsible for the harassment, they, they would be able to, uh, you know, generally be sued personally directly for the harassment. Thanks. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, what employers should do proactively to, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, writing and publicizing a policy. Is that going to be enough? Uh, an anti-harassment policy by itself is not enough. Of course, you should have one, uh, but you should also draft and have uh, a good dress code, uh, grooming, and appearance policy. Um, you know, I have six uh, very quick tips and recommendations um, to limit the risk of discrimination claims arising out of a dress code policy. Number one, uh, it should be based on identifiable, well-articulated, well and legitimate business needs. Number two, 
uh, it should be applied uniformly, like I've been saying. It's, uh, in inconsistent enforcement of a dress code policy increases the odds that some adversely affected employees will claim that the action was related to their protected status, uh, like religion or any of the other categories. Um, third uh, tip is that you, sh uh, you know, a dress code policy should also keep in mind all the applicable state and local laws and regulations. So that's your opportunity to leverage um, your need or uh, uh, to, to comply with local or state regulations regarding safety to impose certain uh, requirements in the policy. Obviously, the policy should be in writing. It should be circulated to everybody. Um, it should, uh, that's number four. Uh, number five is that it should describe the consequences of violating the policy. That puts the employee on notice of what's going to happen. Are you going to be sent home to change or uh, are you going to be get? Are, are you going to get paid for that time that you showed up and had to go back home? Uh, if you were in California, the answer is yeah, you would have to get paid. So you would have to cons to, to um, uh, identify the consequences um, of violating the policy. And then uh, last tip I'd give you is um, you want to maintain some flexibility and discretion to allow for variations that uh, may be required by discrimination laws. Well, that's six great tips. Uh, we really appreciate that. Um, Usama, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been very helpful. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Join Usama in his upcoming BLR webinar, Preventing Appearance-Based Discrimination, Legal Guidelines for Protecting Religious and Cultural Groups. The webinar is being held on May 24th, and a recording will be available after the webinar. To learn more, go to store.blr.com. So listeners, uh, please let, we, let me know what you'd like HR Works to cover next. sbruce at blr.com. Thanks for being with us today. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works. The opinions expressed on HR Works do not represent legal or any other type of professional advice and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified attorney licensed in your state.